Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, the editor, and our podcast today is accompanying an essay in the journal, which is called When Grief Has Mates, King Lear and the Politics of Happiness. And I'm very pleased to be joined by the author, Bridget Escombe of Queen Mary University of London. So, Bridget, what is happiness? Well, I suppose that now I would say happiness is the individual pursuit of feeling good or the individual sense of feeling good. But it hasn't always been that way, and this is something you explore in your essay. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, So I'm very interested in what I would say is a crucial period when the meaning of that word shifts. And for a lot of scholars, that's the 18th century in the Enlightenment. Um, so when you when you have enough well-off bourgeois people to uh, individually pursue their happiness rather than just live hand to mouth, um, and uh, various other Enlightenment notions of um, what the individual should be looking for in life, when those kinds of ideas emerge, a lot of scholars, um, I think, very plausibly argue that that's the emergence of happiness as we know it, happiness as something that the individual has a right to um, and and, uh, a key pursuit of life, if you like. Um, And they would uh, quite rightly argue, uh, and I'm very interested in this, that before that, the word happiness itself means fortune or good luck. So it comes from the medieval hap. Um, And I certainly think that in the works of Shakespeare's contemporaries, that's mainly how it's used. Um, So the word happiness uh, emerges many more times in history plays like Richard II and Richard III than it does in the tragedies and comedies. And it means the happiness of the nation, happy day, happy hour, the day we won the battle. Happy times mean fortunate times, lucky times. Um, In King Lear, Edgar, who's running from his pursuers, um, says that uh, he hears himself proclaimed by his pursuers, and by the happy hollow of a tree, he escaped the hunt, and that simply means he was fortunate to find it. Um, When Cordelia says that she's unhappy that she can't heave her heart into her mouth, she doesn't actually mean that she's miserable, she means that she's unfortunate. But I'm particularly interested in this period in Shakespeare's use of the word happy, uh, because I think at this time it also begins to mean an individual feeling, the feeling that we get when we're fortunate, as well as just hap or good fortune. And this is complicated by the section of the play in which uh, Lear is uh, cast out from society. Mm. He's in this sort of blighted wasteland for people who saw the BBC version with Anthony Hopkins recently. That's mm. Stevenage. Mm. And, <laughs> and this is the point where we see a bit more complication of this term happiness. Yes, yes, absolutely. When Lear is essentially fallen into madness because he's been cast out by his two elder daughters. Um, He's in a state of anger, a state of choler, um, and the trajectory of the play, if you like, follows Lear's very bumpy pursuit back to a state of calm. But that state of calm that we might now associate with individual happiness, for me and King Lear, is very much constructed socially, if you like. So he learns a state of calm 
partly through his encounter with Edgar, who's dressed as poor Tom, a bedlam beggar, one of the least fortunate members of, uh, of society. Um, someone who's uh, been in, a, in an asylum is now cast out into the, into the wild to make his way. Um, and Leah calls him her ph philosopher. And there was a really interesting moment that I, um, that I talk about in the essay in um, Simon Russell Beale's performance of, of Leah at the National, uh, where he's having this encounter with, with Edgar and everybody's trying to get him into the warm and get him out of the rain. But the king wants this encounter and Beale starts to, in the performance, starts to imitate him almost. He starts to imitate his gestures and instead of focusing on his own state of anger, um, he begins to focus on somebody else. Um, so a state of miserable, manic anger shifts I mean, certainly very up and down in the play after that, uh, but shifts to a state of calm, something that that I'm suggesting momentarily at the end of the play, before the tragedy of the death of Cordelia, reaches a moment of lucidity that we might call happiness. And this, I think, is going to be interesting to psychiatrists, because I think psychiatrists are aware now how much their diagnoses are culturally dependent, mm. um, how... You know, I, I think global mental health has really increased awareness of that particular issue. Mm. But maybe something which we think about a bit less is that emotions, as we call them, such as happiness, mm. are culturally constructed as well. Yes. To, yes. to some extent. Absolutely. Um, so th the very notion of an emotion, I think, is culturally con constructed, as, as, as um, many scholars recently have been, have been exploring, if... If we think about how Shakespeare and his contemporaries would have thought as emotion, they would have called them passions, um, and they would have been humorally or physically related. So essentially, the passions or the emotions, something that we would think as crucial to self-expression, um, perhaps for us, the definition of an unhappy person is someone who doesn't have the right or the space or the time or the privilege to express themselves. And what do we mean by express themselves? I think we often mean express our emotions. To ex to so to express one's emotions within reason, um, of course we have anger management, etc. too, um, is, is, is a positive thing. Um, a lot of prose writing in circulating in Shakespeare's time was was highly stoical. It was it was very much a, a, about how the passions are something that physically overwhelm you and are quite dangerous. Um, so to express one's emotion um, and and to be over overwhelmed by passion um, is 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 figured as a sickness uh, it, almost. So the very notion of, of emotion as something positive and something to do with individual identity, I think, is very different. Um, that's not to say um, that uh, Shakespeare and his contemporaries were living in a society that we would call highly emotionally repressed, but they figured emotion very differently um, and, and, and very much as uh, almost a, a bodily function, if you like. Um, so the kinds of definitions of mental health and, and mental illness for us now uh, and 400 years ago, I think, are very different. And yet I'm tempted when, when we think about uh, the connections between mind and body, which, which in the early modern period mm. were, were mediated by the humoral theory, mm -hmm. the four humours of the body. I'm tempted to think that maybe our thinking in medicine is moving 
back in that sort of direction philosophically, if not in terms of the exact details. So I'm thinking of Ed Bulmore's recent book, The Inflamed mm -hmm. Mind, mm -hmm. the idea mm -hmm. of depression being conceived uh, and other mental illnesses, as we call them, being conceived as uh, bodily problems, things to do with uh, inflammatory systems, mm -hmm. as well as the emotional affect, which we've uh, been using to, to describe and to classify. Yes. over the past hundred years. That's absolutely fascinating, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't think that 20 years ago I would have come across the idea that when in love I might be flooded with you know, particular matter, whether the, you know, adrenaline, oxytocin, or whatever stage I'm at in my, in, my in my love. And now I think a lot of people reading popular media uh, would, would know that and ha have a sense of that. So our sense of what produces emotion is, it, I think you're right, perhaps becoming more bodily. But what I would say um, is that what Shakespeare and his contemporaries, and I think this emerges in the moments from, from King Lear that we're talking about, also have is the idea that not only is, is emotional passion circulating in the body and when it gets out of whack, out of, out of balance, it's very dangerous, there's also a sense of it being constructed socially. So, so as, uh, as I referred to earlier, um, happy in Richard III and Richard II it is often referring to a nation's fortune. And in Lear, the idea of happiness when Edgar talks about um, feeling better because you see someone worse off than you. Um, my, my, t my essay is entitled When Grief Has Mates, which is actually from, uh, from Lear. Uh, th that sense that you're what you feel um, is not only um, something that emerges physically in the body, but it's also constructed socially. Um, it's not just about the individual pursuit of a good feeling, if you like. We've got to be very careful about anachronism mm. when we think about these plays. You mentioned in your review, to go back to Simon Russell Beale's Lear mm -hmm. at the National Theatre, um, the idea of bringing uh, modern diagnosis into our thinking about the character character, the idea of dementia with Louis bodies. Mm, that there's uh, interviews of, of Simon Russell Beale in, in the public domain that are easy to find where he, where he gets very excited, the actor gets very excited about the idea um, that Lear might have had dementia with Louis bodies and although Shakespeare wouldn't have called it that, um, he absolutely understood what that state was and that led um, Russell Beale to um, kind of invent a moment in, in King Lear to explain the disappearance of the fool. Lear's fool disappears in the middle of the play. It's uh, uh, been a, a subject of much conjecture as to why Shakespeare does that. Um, there's, there's no seeming reason for the fool disappearing. And in Russell Beale's 2014 production at the National, um, Lear murders the fool um, in, in a moment of dementia with Louis Body's uh, mania. He, he beats the fool to death uh, in a bathtub. For me, whilst on the one hand, I'm very keen for all theatre practitioners to do whatever they like with Shakespeare. He passed away a long time ago and he, he won't know. We can do what we like with that fantastic playwright. But on the other hand, that really did feel like a distraction. This is, for me, a really wonderful and quite seminal performance of a Lear who is uh, an individual bundle of, of affect and feeling and emotion and passion in a wider epic political context. And I think that the production and, and uh, Russell Beale perform that brilliantly. Um, and this Dementia with Louis Body's stuff, which really emerged in, in the reception of the play, I mean, a lot of reviewers mentioned it, um, I, I think in the end became quite a distraction because the notion that a great playwright will somehow prefigure or predict 
the kinds of diagnoses that we later brilliantly and, uh, and more scientifically uh, discover, um, I, I think perhaps leads us away from some of the things that really are interesting for us in those. So what uh, I get from your article is mm. that if we shed those uh, preconceived ideas of mm. modern diagnosis and mm. go back to the core issues of mm. the play as mm. they would have been understood in the early 17th century mm. of that fracture between individual and national happiness, mm. the idea that one's own mental health, to use the modern mm. term, mm. Uh, is is emergent from the group as well as the, yes. the, the, the individual. We maybe get firstly closer to, to the play, mm. to the themes of the play, mm. but also we managed to find something that's very relevant today with the idea about national happiness yes, yes. Uh, being uh, almost a product that you can measure yes. as you would measure GDP. Yes. No, no, absolutely. I think I think so. And I think therein lies the, 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 the part, of, part of the play's relevance for us. So a sense that emerges from Lear that a madness that is created from a very unhappy family place that I think would would, would interest us as, as as psychiatrists certainly is potentially cured by our interactions with other people. So I think that's although that's very different from the idea of a national happiness that we can measure like GDP, it is nevertheless a social construction of happiness. Uh, the fact that um, our individual pursuit of our own good um, is figured as villainy in the play. I mean that's what Edmund does. Edmund says he's not interested in fortune um, and uh, ridiculous uh, old-fashioned notions of the stars controlling us, which is very appealing to, to modern viewers, but he is the, the villain of the piece who, who murders and, and causes the death of, of many many of the uh, beneficent characters in the play. Um, so you've got this individual pursuit of good coming from the villain and a figure, Lear, who we might call very self-obsessed early in the play and learns to connect with others and before the tragic ending has a kind of moment of fortunate and spiritual peace. Bridget Eskam, thank you very much. You can read that essay on our website. But for now, thank you very much for downloading this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that we've made you happy for 15 minutes, and I hope that you'll join us again next time. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.